This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, teacher shortages and students falling behind exposed in a damning report. How can Australia's education system be fixed? Also, Woolworths to close almost all of its in-store butchers. It's blaming customer preferences for packaged meat. Independent butchers are watching the market. It becomes challenging when you go to try and compete with them head-to-head. So essentially, the independent butchers dealing with a slingshot, whereas these guys have got nuclear weapons. And can the construction industry change to attract more women? We'll hear how all workers could benefit from a shake-up. The hours are typically seven to five, and we all know school doesn't start till nine and finishes at three. So you've got to either have good people to look after your children or pay a lot of money for childcare. First tonight, the Federal Government's Productivity Commission has confirmed Australia's education standards are falling and it says underprivileged students and those in the regions are the worst affected. The nation's education minister says the assessment is damning and serious reform of the system is needed. Education experts say the decline in standards has been apparent for a decade or more and radical changes are needed. Matt Bamford reports. As a school councillor in regional New South Wales, Michael Cipher is in high demand. The president of the Armidale Teachers Association says staff shortages mean students are suffering. It's, it's a real challenge when we have schools with multiple classroom teacher vacancies in them uh, and we have vacancies of school councillors as well. So that means that students in rural areas uh, are missing out on access to qualified teachers which disrupts their learning, and it also means they're missing out on uh, critical access to mental health support in schools. The staff who remain have to carry the load. He says it often means teachers are taking on more than they can handle. Often it comes down to classroom teachers who are, who are having to provide you know, emergency-type therapy to kids and they're, and they're not trained as psychologists. That's putting another burden on teachers that they shouldn't have to have, and they're often hearing very distressing stories from students because there isn't the mental health support in schools as there should be. He's not alone. The Productivity Commission says these problems are affecting schools across the country. Its review into the National School Reform Agreement shows literacy and numeracy results have dropped since 2018. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare says the report is damning. We've got a good education system, but it can be a lot better and a lot fairer. And this report out today from the Productivity Commission makes that blisteringly clear. This is a damning report about the former government's four-year plan for education. This report makes it clear that we need serious reform in education. The review also shows efforts to address inequality in educational outcomes are failing. Students who are Indigenous or from remote or regional areas are consistently behind. Jessica Holloway is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Learning Sciences and Education at the Australian Catholic University. There seems to be quite a bit of shock, but if I'm completely honest, I don't think that you would find many educational researchers or experts who would be actually quite surprised by the findings. Equity is still at the heart of the problem that we're seeing 
in schools. And I think that time and again, we are seeing that schools are being positioned as the ones who are meant to fix a problem that stems way beyond um, what schools are able to handle alone. So how did we get to this point? We have become so narrowly focused on things like achievement and performance. Schools are part of community and they are part of much broader networks and systems that are meant to help support students. She's not impressed by the minister's comments. And I was very disappointed to see that his comments were not contextualized better to account for the unprecedented challenges that schools are being tasked with right now. It's more blame. And I think it helps governments um, cede some of their own responsibility in terms of providing communities with the resources and supports that they need. A new national school reform agreement is up for negotiation in 2025. The Productivity Commission says it should focus on better supporting teachers and make student well-being a national priority. Michael Seifer from the Armidale Teachers Association says any reform must target the most vulnerable students. Jason Clare has spoken about establishing a funding pathway so that all schools meet their minimum resource standard, which was identified in the original Gonski review. Uh, so I think all eyes are on on the uh, federal government to ensure that that's actually implemented. And I think the other thing they need to be very careful about is if they're going to look at targets, they need to ensure that targets are meeting the needs of the most disadvantaged young people in our schools. Uh, there's all, always a, a lot of talk about the, the av- average goals for average students, but the real issue is about disadvantaged students missing out, and those are the students uh, where the focus needs to be. Michael Seifer from the Armidale Teachers Association. Matt Bamford with that report. Well, we're coming up to an anniversary no one wants to celebrate. Next Wednesday, it'll be three years since the coronavirus was first detected in Australia. It's not going away. So how do you think we should handle it over the next year or so? Are you keen for a fifth dose of vaccine to be offered? More mask wearing in public places? Or perhaps no COVID safe measures at all? Researchers at Melbourne Uni have been looking at the effects more than 100 different combinations of measures would have in Victoria over the next year. Dr Josh Sunyi is the study's lead author. So if we look at best case scenarios um, that came out of the modelling where we had really effective policies in place and we weren't unlucky to get a particularly infectious variant or a particularly uh, virulent variant, so a variant really able to cause very severe disease, uh, we would see around, uh, for example, 1.8 million infections over 12 months. Um, but then in the worst case scenarios where we had uh, very lax um, public health measures, uh, very little ongoing vaccination, and were unlucky enough, for example, to get a, a really uh, transmissible variant or a really dangerous variant, we saw much higher um, infections and deaths over that 12-month period. So I think the message there is it really depends on things that we can control in terms of policy, um, but also what the virus does next, which is very difficult for us to control or predict. So what did you find was the, the best combination of measures to protect lives and health? I think there were really three key uh, messages to, to come out of the modelling in that regard. Uh, the first was that particularly if we get uh, unlucky and we, we have another very highly virulent variant coming along uh, like Delta, but maybe as you know, more transmissible than um, some of the Omicron subvariants, it might be necessary to have a low threshold to introduce um, some public health and 
social measures. And by that, I mean things like, again, um, increasing the number of people working from home, for example, or avoiding um, some contact with others, even when we take into account the economic losses from them. So when we look at economic impacts and societal impacts, often having those lower thresholds to, to trigger some public health and social measures really did perform better. Uh, the other message I think is that, and we already know this, ongoing vaccination is really important. So we really saw the value in this model of uh, ongoing vaccination, people keeping up to date with their boosters, both in terms of reducing the burden of disease and the pressure on the hospital system, which we also modelled, uh, but also the vaccination saved uh, society money uh, in this modelling because it reduced the need to re resort to other uh, methods for, for controlling spread. And what's the, the third message? The third point would be uh, that uh, while uh, masks are effective and we know that they're effective, uh, in this model, we looked at the impact of increasing mask wearing or upgrading mask wearing during large waves of infection. And if we uh, implemented the policies then, they had little impact. And I think the important point there is to say that that was leaving things a little bit too late, uh, waiting until there were large surges of infection. Masking up, uh, particularly for vulnerable people during large waves, is of course still a good idea, um, but it's a little bit like acting uh, when the horse has bolted. And so we think that what this modelling really points to is the value of acting a bit earlier uh, rather than waiting until things get out of hand. So wearing masks when, when transmission is, is sort of even at moderate levels. Correct, yes. Governments around Australia are taking the approach that we really have to live with COVID and they're seemingly very reluctant to reintroduce any health measures, whether mandatory or otherwise. So why to you as a doctor working in public health was it important to do this research? I think it's really around making sure that we have uh, realistic uh, expectations or at least uh, as society, as a community, understand what the different future uh, scenarios might be. And I think uh, what's helpful is to understand if things did get worse, what could be helpful. Uh, and then as a society, I think we then need to decide, well, well, what are we willing to put into place, um, uh, you know, based on based on how things are, are currently playing out? As I've mentioned before, I think that's a much more complex question and there are political elements to that. There are uh, elements that have to take into account societal values. But I think the value of this kind of modelling allows people to understand what the costs of particular uh, decisions might be and also what the benefits of those might be and then make an informed uh, an informed choice. Dr Josh Sunyi from Melbourne Uni's School of Population and Global Health and that research has just been published in the Lancet Regional Health Western Pacific Journal. Hundreds of butchers will soon lose their jobs with the supermarket giant Woolworths announcing the closure of its in-store butchery counters. The company is blaming low sales for the decision and unions say the affected workers are devastated. But industry experts believe the decline in demand shows customers are buying more pre-packaged goods. Here's Isabel Masali. At Scott Fittler's Butcher, preparations are underway for one of their busiest times, Australia Day. In his decades in the business, he's been learning new tricks to bring in customers. Probably do a cheese and Vegemite sausage. We're looking at a, um, a Lamington burger, which will be a dark chocolate and coconut coated lamb burger, things like that. You've got to offer something different. Um, if, you, if you at least don't look different and offer a different range. His store in Armidale, New South Wales, is right next to supermarket giant Woolworths. And while he targets different customers, it can be tough. It becomes challenging when you go to try and compete with them head-to-head, -head. so 
if you become about price and you become about you sort of lose your identity and yeah, they can be pretty difficult to deal with. Essentially, you know, the independent butchers dealing with a slingshot, whereas these guys have got nuclear weapons. But he's saddened by today's announcement that Woolworths will close the majority of its in-store butcher shops, though he thinks it's been a long time coming. Patrick Hutchison is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, which represents independent butchers along with those who supply Woolworths. He doesn't believe the Woolworths butchers posed a big threat to independence when they were introduced several years ago, but says it's clear it hasn't worked and its demise is a sign of the times. It hasn't had an impact as we've seen on the meat supply chain, but what it does also show is that the more artisan and bespoke meat management and meat provision uh, is always going to be with the in-store independent local butcher rather than um, uh, that fast-moving consumer goods style. But as they say, um, you know, facsimile is the uh, highest form of flattery. You know, they were looking to copy the the process that uh, independent butchers have. He says the closure could be seen as sad, but it could also help those who are struggling to find skilled staff. Matt Jorno from the Meat Industry Employees Union has slammed the decision. Yeah, they're feeling shocked and devastated. This has come out of left field. Woolworths did actually um, go through a round of redundancies uh, about four years ago, and this is the second round, but um, most people thought their jobs were pretty secure. Woolworths has about 300 butcher shops and plan to close all but 50 in March. That's nearly 500 roles that'll end, and some staff will be redeployed. In a statement, a Woolworths spokesperson said it deeply regrets the impact of the decision and it came after a review found just 4% of its meat sales were from the counter. Matt Jorno doesn't agree that low sales were to blame. No, everyone I speak to um, wants to have a chat with the butcher, wants to know um, what sort of product uh, to use for a particular dish, how to prepare it, um, and all of that will disappear when butchers leave the stores. Dr Jason Pallant is a marketing expert at Swinburne University of Technology. He says this goes against a recent trend to offer more in-store services, but also reflects high demand for packaged foods. There's been a general shift away from using uh, independent custom services towards more bulk convenience items. That includes pre-packaged items. It includes uh, ready-made meals. We're seeing consumers increasingly, I'm poor, choosing for uh, quicker options, even if that means at a what we might say is a lower quality uh, kind of um, point. So I think rather than a shift away from, which is specifically it's more a shift towards pre-packaged and convenience items. Dr Jason Pallant from Swinburne University, Isabel Masali reporting. This is PM, I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, last night's five-set Australian Open match has raised questions about the toll all-night matches have on players, officials and the fans. Problematically for tennis, they have a sport that's not time-bound. They don't know which match is going to go for five hours. Unless you've driven in, it's a long way home or an expensive way home at that time of the night. (music) 
About a dozen countries are pledging to send more weapons to Ukraine ahead of a meeting of 50 nations at the American Ramstein Air Base in Germany on Friday. But NATO members are still divided over whether to send German-made Leopard tanks to Kyiv. Several governments have said they want to send tanks to Ukraine, but that requires Berlin's approval. And despite mounting pressure, the German government is refusing so far. Neil Whitehead has more. 11 months into Russia's invasion, the war grinds on and Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is calling for tanks to help break the impasse. To oppose thousands of tanks of the Russian Federation, the bravery of our servicemen is not enough. We need weapons. We either need a lot of artillery systems or an adequate number of tanks. The question of whether to send tanks to Ukraine has divided Western partners. This week, the UK confirmed plans to send 14 Challenger 2 tanks to Kyiv. But Germany has held up similar efforts across Europe. Admiral Rob Bauer is chair of the NATO military committee. In a war like it is being fought, every type of, uh, of equipment is necessary. And the Russians are fighting with tanks, so the Ukrainians need tanks as well. Germany manufactures some of the world's leading battle tanks, Leopards, which are used by the armies of more than a dozen European nations. There are more than 2,300 Leopard 2 tanks available or in storage across the continent. And some governments, including Finland and Poland, want to share them with Ukraine. But that requires German sign-off. And so far, its government's vetoed the idea, arguing against anything that might provoke Moscow. Gustav Gressel is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. The Chancellery is enormously afraid of nuclear war and they're perceived they're the prime target for that. I don't know how this strange perception is carrying about. Um, I have a bit of the impression that Scholz has lost sight of, of the fact that Germany is actually part of NATO alliance. So, I mean, he's mentally not westbound. Governments have been trying to persuade Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz to lift the veto ahead of a meeting of about 50 defence ministers in Germany tomorrow. But government sources in Berlin have said Germany would only allow Leopard tanks to be sent to Kyiv if America also agrees to send its Abrams tank. Poland's Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki says he's moderately pessimistic. The Germans are defending themselves against this like a devil protects himself against holy water. They do not want to send their modern equipment, especially especially these leopards. Matthew Sussex is an associate professor with the Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Uh, ultimately, I, I think that the decision by the UK to send 14 Challenger tanks to Ukraine was designed to, to sort of break the ice, to just get the ball rolling. But it does seem that Olaf Scholz has doubled down uh, and said, uh, no, you know, he uh, he won't agree with, with tanks going to Ukraine, to which, you know, Poland and Lithuania and others have said, well, we're going to send them anyway. Um, so it reveals, I think, you know, kind of the divides within NATO about whether or not offensive weapons like tanks should be uh, should be sent to this war zone, whether it escalates the conflict or, or whether it's, you know, better to, to send them anyway to help the Ukrainians. Mm. So how damaging do you think that the German position has been to the supply of heavier, more offensive NATO weapons? 
Oh, look, I, I think it has been fairly damaging, frankly, uh, because Germany uh, is a leader within NATO and, uh, and what it says holds a significant amount of sway. So it, it's a problem, I think, both for NATO unity as it is more immediately for, for Ukrainians on the battlefield. And I think the one thing that sometimes gets missed here is that we talk about tanks as as enabling a Ukrainian counteroffensive. But from a Ukrainian perspective, the, the Russians are amassing quite a sizable force to, to have another go at extending their own offensive operations. And, uh, and there's a fairly good argument to say that you need tanks to, to block that. Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from the Australian National University, Neil Whitehead, reporting. Australia's construction industry is one of our biggest employers, providing jobs for some 1.2 million workers. It's currently experiencing a skills shortage, but despite this, it remains a challenging workplace for many women. Those in the sector say making the industry a more attractive career option for women would also make it a better place for men to work. Mary Lloyd reports. Good morning. Today, Sam, what we'd like to do is we're cleaning the foundations out down below. Okay, well, I'll go down, I'll do my pre-start, and I'll jump on the 1.7 tonne excavator. And I've got two three-tonne trucks for you to load as well. Copy that. After working many years as a labourer, Samantha Freitas turned to operating heavy machinery and is now a sought-after operator on civil construction sites. You name it, putting me on it, I'll operate it. <laughs> and she'd like to see more women choosing a career path in construction. I love seeing women on construction sites. I quite often try and bring my friends in, I'll get them on site. I encourage all females to get into the construction industry for the simple fact is it's a never-ending career. There's always lots of money in it. She's clear-eyed about working in a male-dominated industry. They say stupid stuff, so you're just going to have a bit of a thick skin and a good sense of humour. But says the hardest thing about her career choice is the long days. The hours are typically seven to five, and we all know school doesn't start till nine and finishes at three, so you've got to either have good people to look after your children or pay a lot of money for childcare. Luke Allman, a site manager on commercial construction sites, agrees the long hours the construction industry demands are hard on families. Every day could be completely different as to whether you're going to work eight hours and finish at 2.30 or 10 hours and finish at 4.30 or in some cases longer. So it's very difficult for people to even plan their day. His wife works flexible hours, so she picks up and drops off their son at daycare. But he'd like to do more of that, to support her more and be more involved in his son's life. Hugo's in kindy at the moment. He's going to prep in the new year. And just to be able to be a part of that process would be really nice. I think it's important for him to see his dad take the time to drop him off and pick him up from school. And He doesn't expect the industry to change its workplace practices anytime soon, but does think it would happen faster if the workforce was more diverse. If there was more women in the industry, it would definitely influence more flexible working arrangements in construction sites. Dr Natalie Galea from the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne agrees that the way the construction sector operates is not healthy for many employees. These work practices have been shown to be really detrimental to men in the construction sector. So these long work hours, they, they bleed over into people's family life and that produces stress 
poor work-life balance, relationship breakdowns. And so it's not unsurprising that construction has the second highest suicide rates of all sectors in the country. Construction workers six times more likely to kill themselves than die from a workplace accident. In her view, addressing the structural issues in the sector requires change from the top. Government who are a major client of the construction sector have to get realistic about the timelines they're expecting on contractors and the work hours they're expecting of workers. But before more women will be willing to spend time on construction sites, the industry needs to address its hypermasculine reputation. I just think that um, women get more scared that when they come on the site there, we're going to be harassed. With more women in the sector, that would hopefully change and they might experience something Samantha Freitas appreciates about working in construction, that it's a deeply social environment. At the end of the day, people look out for each other, like whether it's boys or the girls, everyone's got each other's back and we all just want to go home safe at the end of the day. Heavy machinery operator Samantha Freitas speaking with Mary Lloyd. The industry group Master Builders Australia says it has a program focused on ensuring that employers and workers are welcoming of women and there's no thuggery on sites. Its CEO, Danita Warne, says more part-time and casual work would encourage more women to enter the industry. She also says there are practical reasons for such early starts. It is predominantly uh, to ensure that you're getting product into um, site prior to busy periods. It's also due to weather uh, conditions, particularly in summer, where you want to work at the cooler hours of the day. So there are practical reasons why we start early, but there are many practices that don't necessarily require an early start. Uh, So it's important as uh, parties uh, negotiate their enterprise agreements that they create more flexibility in their work practices. Danita Warne, the CEO of Master Builders Australia. Well, it was a marathon match, certainly one for the record books. After playing for nearly six hours, Scotsman Andy Murray defeated Australia's Tanasi Kokonakis in one of the longest matches ever played at the Australian Open. But Murray's epic five-set win, which didn't wrap up until four in the morning, is raising questions over why matches are played so late. Bridget Fitzgerald prepared this report. Grueling, epic, historic. An exhausted, triumphant Andy Murray celebrates a five-set win against Australia's Thanasi Kokonakis. But the 35-year-old Scott made it clear he wasn't happy the match was played so late. It's obviously amazing to win to win the match, but I also I want to go to bed now. Due to scheduling, the match didn't get underway until 10pm. It then became the second longest match in the tournament's history, wrapping up five hours and 45 minutes later at around 4am. Rather than it being like epic Murray Kokonakis match, it's like, you know, it ends in a bit of a you know, a bit of a farce. Journalists and commentators took to social media to voice their concern. Tennis legend Martina Navratilova tweeted that better rules needed to be established with regard to start and finish times so matches didn't last all night. But speaking to Channel 9, Australian Open boss Craig Tiley ruled out a change to scheduling. We've had long matches before, but at this point, you know, what it is, we've got to fit those matches in in the, in the 14 days, so you don't have many options. Problematically for tennis, they have a sport that's not time bound. 
Dr Jeff Dixon is the Director of the Centre for Sport and Social Impact at La Trobe University. A men's five-set tennis match can go, you know, if it's a whitewash, could probably be completed in 75 minutes, just over an hour. Uh, and it can go go for north of five hours. All-night matches are clearly not only a problem for players, but for officials, food workers, ball boys and girls, and of course the fans. Some fans voiced concern over taxi drivers allegedly demanding inflated fares from those trying to get home from Melbourne Park very early this morning. While the practice of charging surge prices is legal, one woman told the ABC a driver had tried to charge her $125 to take her to Box Hill, four times the normal fare. How much would it normally be? Normally $30. Courtney Walsh is a Melbourne-based sports writer covering the Australian Open. The issue that uh, is apparent in Melbourne throughout this summer about uh, metres being turned off on taxis and, and perhaps gouging of prices, it's certainly uh, more prevalent uh, this year than what I can remember in, in quite a few years. While he says the Open can't be held responsible for taxi fares, organisers need to think about how fans get home safely after such late games. At the French Open last year, they introduced a night session for the first time in Paris and they found that a couple of sessions ran overly a lot of time. Public transport shut down. There was anger on the streets, uh, fans stranded and not able to get back to their homes. And that caused a, a rethink and they're, and they're certainly considering what to do there. So if they're doing that in Paris, they should certainly be considering what to do here in Melbourne. And as you said, the fans, but it's also the ball kids. It's also the the other officials and staffers who are here, unless you've driven in, it's a long way home or an expensive way home at that time of the night. But when it comes down to is it worth it or or what's going to change, considering the media more broadly, not just sports media, has spent the day reporting on this match, does that kind of answer the question on whether it's worth it? (laughs) Yeah, and it's a match that's gone around the globe. So I suspect that the old adage, any publicity is good publicity. They'd be happy to see the quality of match, the fact that you have an icon versus an Aussie, and the fact that people around the world are talking about it, no matter the circumstances from the quality of tennis to the uh, absurd finishing time. I think that publicity bosses and perhaps uh, those who have paid big money to, uh, to sponsor and to get rights here, I'm sure they'd be quite happy with it. Sports writer Courtney Walsh, Bridget Fitzgerald with that report. And that's PM for this week. I'm Samantha Donovan. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.